Well, hi everyone, and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. I hope this finds you well. What are you up to in July? For two days in July, I am putting together a conference with some friends of mine entitled the Dead Preachers Society. If you're someone who's interested in communicating the gospel in the modern age, if you're a fan of history, or if you just want two days away from it all at the seaside town of Eastbourne on the south coast of England, you should come and join us. Information about the conference can be found at www.deadpreachers.com. Now, back to today's episode. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Lizzie Ling. Dr. Ling worked as a family doctor for many years and is now Associate Minister for Women at St. Ebb's Church in Oxford. In 2020, as part of the Talking Point series, Lizzie published the book simply titled Abortion, which forms the basis of our conversation today. Links to Dr. Ling's work, along with anything else that we talked about in the conversation, will be available in the description to today's episode. Now, the battle and debate over abortion is one that goes on and requires us as Christians to pray and, where possible, to write to our MPs, support women and seek to understand the painful realities and situations that some women find themselves in. During COVID times, there was, as a matter of convenience really, a further relaxing of the rules around abortion in the UK. This saw the introduction of a temporary bill allowing the abortion pills to be sent out to people by post to people's homes. This obviously resulted in more abortions. Now, at the time of our recording, it had been agreed that this would stop at the end of August. This was something that Lizzie talked about gladly. Sadly, however, since we recorded, the House of Lords has voted to overturn this decision, meaning that, apart from other things, choosing to have an abortion has never been easier than it is right now. Well, let's listen to what Dr. Lizzie Ling has to teach us about this highly sensitive and emotive subject. Over to our conversation. We are going to be talking about something that is um, culturally a hot potato, we might say, uh, and also something that needs to be handled with a lot of sensitivity and grace. And that's what I really appreciate about your book um, on abortion. It, it is very humane, very gracious, and yet also very clear on your own position and what you think the Bible has to say about this. Um, so we just wanted to say that at the front end, really, for, for those listening, that uh, this isn't, we recognise this isn't a discussion about ideas so much as it is a discussion about um, just the painful reality and complexities of living in a fallen world with difficult choices all around that we need to make and with making decisions that have consequences for our lives. Um, so Lizzie, I know that you're going to handle this subject with us, with the kind of compassion and grace that I've heard you talk before and you, you do in your writing. Um, but as we kind of come into it, why don't we just start with the, the question that we were beginning to talk about before we pressed record, and that is just around the whole whole. Uh, background to why you came to wrote, write the book in the first place and why this became and has become such an important issue for you. Yeah, I've got to say really that it hasn't always been such an important issue. Um, uh, actually, I think my interaction with the topic goes back uh, many years really to medical school. Um, and I remember being in a lecture at medical school um, by a guy called David Payton. And David was influential in the 1967 Abortion Act um, he was a very gentle man, a very sincere man, um, uh, and a man who in some ways I could res I, I respected greatly, um, uh, but a man who was definitely pro-abortion and wanted to see the law changed. And then a couple of years later, I was in the operating theatre with him when he was performing a late abortion. And I was so aware of the conflict 
between the violence of the procedure, uh, but the sincerity of this man. Um, and so I was really unsettled. I really couldn't uh, understand. And I, we, I think we have to admit that there are very sincere people on the other side of the debate to us even if we might profoundly disagree, or I would profoundly disagree with them. So I was aware as I went into my medical career, I guess, that I wasn't happy with this issue. Um, but I didn't really think it all through. Um, I could skirt around it and kind of get involved, um, uh, but not involved. I wouldn't sign abortion forms as a GP. That sort of pricked my conscience. The fact of the matter though, I wasn't a Christian at that time. <laughs> Um, but it was really when I became a Christian during my life as a GP that things started to change. Um, and in fact, it wasn't that I, I, I turned my back on sort of the abortion topic. In fact, I probably engaged even more sincerely with it because I saw the difficulties that women found themselves in when they came to me requesting an abortion. Um, and my heart was moved. I could see the dilemmas that they faced with unexpected pregnancy. Um, and yet I knew that in some way, well, I knew that abortion was not going to be the best solution. It was unlikely to be the best solution for them, I felt at the time. Now I think I'd almost go too far as to say that it is never the best solution, uh, even in, in, in a woman's experience. Um, uh, on the bigger scale of things, I think abortion really does leave a mark on a woman's life. Um, it's something so profound and fundamental that we're doing against our being made in the image of God as women when we have an abortion that it's bound to leave its mark. But anyway, that's others would disagree with me and um, put that aside. Um, I found myself actually perhaps spending more time with women uh, requesting abortions than perhaps my colleagues um, um, because I wanted them to explore the topic and to make sure they really did have a, as much as they could a choice to make their mind up properly with all the facts um, and give them the time to do that. Because I think when women find themselves unexpectedly pregnant, um, it's such a shock, you just want to sort the problem out as quickly as possible. And the easy default is to think abortion. And in fact, then, you know, you're left to ruminate on that decision for years later sometimes. And you wanna make sure that as far as for that woman, she feels she has made the right decision at the time. So I, I became, I invested in that uh, a little bit more as a GP, I guess, um, but when I became a Christian, um, but still, I hadn't really thought things through until there was a guy called Dave Brennan pitched up in Oxford, and uh, he's from an organisation called Brefos, who's a pro-life organisation, um, and he presented a seminar to, for church leaders. It was um, uh, on just raising awareness, saying, you know, where is the church in this, that kind of thing. I guess it was quite telling that there were only two of us there, <laughs> but I was one of them, and... Um, and that really challenged me. Um, Dave uses a lot of imagery in his presentations, which sometimes I find um, a bit uncomfortable. So my visceral reaction, and I think lots of people have that, but he and others like him would argue that actually um, the imagery and the pictures are powerful. And that was certainly my experience. That's, that's what triggered me to think, no, something really needs to be done about this. And in fact, I came back to church and, uh, Vaughan Roberts, who's the pastor, um, he'd actually asked me to go on this seminar, um, uh, asked me to present a seminar to the church. And as I had to think through these things and process what Dave had said, I guess I sort of, I guess that I brought my own nuance to how to present and think about the issue. Um, and um, yeah, 
so we had ran a seminar at church and then because um, a good book company who published the talking book series and Vaughan have worked together as this in this sort of talking point series um, I, it was suggested that I that I and Vaughan put this book together um, the idea of these books is just to get churches talking really um, and to provide tools for conversations to happen uh, within congregations so I hope that's I I hope that's where it's going to be helpful yeah you mentioned um, coming going to that seminar there's only two of you there um yeah how, how have you found the reaction to the book is is the church largely silent on issue that it should be talking and, and perhaps what are some of your reflections on why the church might be silent or not speaking or thinking much about this issue um and yeah then subsequently what's the reaction been to to your book since it's come out um i think um I think it's a hard topic to talk about. It's really hard. And I think we need a framework to do it. And often people have not had the time to think it through. Um, it's such a sensitive tissue, oh, issue, <laughs> sensitive tissue, sensitive issue that um, one's careful in normal conversation um, as to who might be listening, who you might be talking to. Um, it's estimated now that one in three women over the age of 45 will have had an abortion, which is an enormous number. So if you're starting to have conversations within church, you've got to be very aware that there are people who are personally affected by this, whether it's women themselves, whether it's um, partners of women, whether it's grandparents, all sorts of issues are raised on a, on a pastoral personal level. And so you've got to feel confident to, to navigate some of those, um, I think. Um, and so people, shy away from the topic really um i think too you know there is a national there's, there's that 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 feeling torn there is a natural compassion for the for the injustices that mean that women sometimes find themselves in situations needing abortions um and but also knowing that surely god has created us in his image what makes it different that we're a fetus in a womb rather than a six month old um you know all those sort of we we just don't we just don't, haven't really thought it through a bit like me before i started on this process sort of about three years ago yeah and the response to your book how's that been uh well as response to the book got a bit scuppered by covid really oh of course yeah, <laughs> the, yeah a difficult time to release a new was. book into the world <laughs> it was um so there were lots of plans of sort of trying to uh, and opportunities to speak at um, conferences and stuff like that, but they all got cancelled. And there's been a bit. Um, I've been so encouraged, actually. The most encouraging thing have been from women who've been running um, uh, pregnancy advice clinics or running training programs who've written to me and said, um, look, this is the book we really wanted. It's it's clear on the it's clear on the, the rights and the wrongs of it, but it also acknowledges um, the need from compassion in a pastoral setting for women who are in tough positions. Um, so that's been the biggest encouragement. It's been translated into French and into Spanish. That was quite, <laughs> that was quite a surprise for us. Um, I think I wish it would have got into more hands. Definitely, I do. I do wish it had. Um, the nice thing is once now that it's out there it can only increase in the um the readership of it yeah i think so and um uh yes at times some stage it'll need a bit of updating i guess we'll see well um why don't we just dive into the the early chapters of the book and um the, the opening few chapters are our questions where are we who are we and when are we human um perhaps in just setting the kind of broader scene for us 
in the UK, where, where are we at? Because I think for a lot of us, um, this feels like a noisy issue in America. And so we think, wrongly, this is an American issue. Or this is something the Americans yeah. are very animated about. But us Brits, it's not something that affects us. So it's really lovely to, to actually read a, a British perspective on it. Um, but perhaps that our opening chapter, where are we? Could you help just set the set the historic framework for us. Yes, certainly. Well, abortion is basically illegal in this country. Um, I don't think we sometimes realize that. Um, fundamentally, the default is that it's illegal, but um, the um, Abortion Act of 1967 makes it legal in certain circumstances. Um, and um, so, and there are various categories which doctors have to sign to say it's, it's, it's legal in this situation. Um, and and because it's a legally um, sort of regulated um, uh, issue, there are statistics gathered um, every year, and you can Google those and you can find them on the internet as to how many abortions are having being, being done, for what reason, um, whether in private sector, privately, all sorts of different sort of um, uh, uh, factors you can look at. Um, but the bottom line is that um, the rate, the number of abortions that are happening is increasing all the time. Ever since 1967, there's been a steady, steady rise. In fact, it was a very steep rise. It's a slower rise now, but it is still increasing. Um, and there are now about 800 abortions done every single working day in this country. And I don't know, I find it difficult to, to, to get my head around that. I start thinking of the number of jumbo jets that would have to crash out of the sky every day for us to sort of wake up and realize what's happening or how many classrooms full of children would need to, um, you know, I don't know. It's just, it's just, just impossible to, to think of. Um, and that's not just the life. That's, that's the issue for the mother. That's the issue for the family. Um, there's all sorts of ramifications for that. And within that 800, there are some interesting trends. Um, we often think that abortion, I think that's one of the things as well that we get from the media is that, um, you know, surely this is something for young kids who've been raped, who come from particularly difficult backgrounds, um, for whom life choices are now going to be completely altered, all sorts of things. Well, I'm not sure that that's entirely true. The evidence is that it's in, in the under 18s, the, in, the frequency of abortion is reducing. And it's only 3% of abortions that are done in under 18s. 15% though are done in the over 35s and that level is increasing. Um, and there are reasons behind that, um, which I think are, are interesting and perhaps we can come on to, but, it, but I think we need, we need to be, and we often think too it's for, for to save the life of the mother or to or to or because the child is severely disabled well those things represent a tiny tiny fraction of the number of abortions that are happening um something like well i think to save the life of the mother it's something like 0.04 percent um to for because of abnormality it's two percent um of abortions and even then um, I don't know that i would feel that those abortions were justified on the basis i don't think many people would um, several uh, cleft lip and palate, for instance, are, are, uh, are, uh, are one of the, the conditions that are sort of highlighted by the statistics. And I don't know if you know, do you know people with cleft lip and palate? I know several kids who've had operations early in their childhood, perfectly normal. Um, 
Yeah, I think you. I think you said it was um, two hundred thousand abortions in um, twenty. When was that? Twenty nineteen. Yeah, it's over that now. Something like two thousand of two hundred and five thousand now. Mm. You mentioned just then that, uh, that it's in, uh, abortions are increasing in the over thirty fives, and you said there are yeah. some reasons for that. What are some of those reasons? Yeah, it's to do with antenatal screening, really, um, and early tests that mothers are offered in the antenatal clinic, which give them a probability of um, a child having conditions such as Down syndrome. Um, so I, 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 I don't quote me on the figures here, but for instance, if I was 25 and going to have this test, I would expect my chance of having a child with Down syndrome to be something like one in 400. Um, now, if your test result comes back and that has shifted to one in 200, you're now thought to be at higher risk of having a child with Down syndrome for your age. And so then uh, there are further tests you could do. You could wait till about 16, 17 weeks and have something called amniocentesis to check out the facts of that matter. Or you could choose not to carry the risk and to have an early abortion at sort of eight or 10 weeks. And the fact of the matter is that when those, when some of those statistics come back, when women are given some of those probabilities and they seem to them to be represent a higher risk and a risk that they don't want to take. People are choosing to have abortions rather than find out whether Charles has Down syndrome or, or what have you. And you know, it says some fundamental things about what we really think about disability as a society. We have this public image of inclusivity. Uh, you know, every soap opera has somebody with a disability in it because that's seen as the right thing to do in public. And it is the right thing to do. <laughs> but what we're saying privately is that actually we don't value the disabled life in 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 the way we'd like to think we do. Um, in Iceland, actually, there are no disabled children born, no Down syndrome children born because of this early antenatal testing. And you know what? It's not so hard for people for people like us who have a pro-life position to start making our voices heard just in the day-to-day -day of life in the antenatal clinic to make choices. No, I'm, I'm not going to have that test done. I don't, don't even want the test. Well, the answer could come back. Um, well, you can have the test because it would help you to prepare for a child if you knew. And that's a legitimate reason. But just to start having those kinds of conversations with the medical um, world would be really great because things have shifted enormously since I was a doctor. Uh, a friend of a friend recently knew she was carrying a Down syndrome child. She was uh, a Christian. She was never going to have an abortion. And but even as she went into labor, she was told that she was, would be entitled to have an abortion on the basis of a, an abnormality because people's mindsets have completely changed on this topic. Um, and we need to be aware and start having just gentle pushbacks and conversations and modeling a different way of life, a different um, something distinctive as Christians, really, I think. Um, so, I mean, you, you mentioned that, you know, that people's mindsets have changed on this issue. Um, and I, I remember I read a, a history book recently that about the Abortion Act and David Paynton, and it was very much presented as the much more humane and compassionate thing to do. And the, the you know, you, like you said, your heart goes out to women who are facing impossible situations, seemingly. And it seems that the public mood has, has turned very much in favour of compassion towards the mother's suffering. Um, and, you know, slogans like my body, my choice are almost seen as defeater arguments 
um, mm. that you think, well, of course, your body, your choice. Um, yes. How, yeah. how, I mean, I'd like to, we'll come on in a moment to talk about whether or not pro-life, pro-choice are even useful labels, but um, what, what's your observations as to why society's mood or opinion on this has changed so much and, uh, and what you think the church needs to do to try to help present an alternative? Um, yeah, I think we do, naturally. Yeah, there is something that sounds right, doesn't it, about my body, my choice. Um, and I think... Oh, there's so much, so much background. We could go back to, <laughs> to the patriarchy and misogyny and <laughs> Let's feminism. Let's go there. Go on then. Well, uh, <laughs> well, well, we know, we know biblically, don't we, that, um, you know, there is the battle of the sexes and um, we live under the curse of the fall and um, women have been um, oppressed and ill-treated. That's where domestic violence comes from. That's where human trafficking comes from. That's where some of the situations that women find themselves in um, when they need an abortion um, uh, come from. Um, and I think, you know, second wave feminism had a, loads of fantastic stuff um, as part of it. But one of its strands, and it got aligned with, was this desire to separate uh, the, in order for the woman to have equal workplace opportunities. She really needed to separate herself from her biology because childbirth and pregnancy and um, uh, caring for children, you know, interrupted those opportunities or threatened those opportunities. And so, so it was aligned and there were big pushes to, to both on, with the contraceptive pill was part of it, and, um, but abortion rights was also a big part of it. Um, so there's that um, on a big level. Um, I think also though on a very, so where society where society's come from, I think I think that's that's been that's been a huge push. Um, I I think we shouldn't be shy of steering away from the fact that early pro-abortion lobbies were eugenicists. I think, and you know what we've just said about disability, um, I think is is a common thread amongst the pro-abortion lobby, or a, a, just a nasty dark bit of the history to it, um, mm. and it. And it has raised its head, it's eugenics now with Down syndrome babies. Uh, and I, th I don't think we should be shy of saying that. Um, I think the problem is as well, is that we don't want to face the truth. Um, I think, and there's not many people who know that there are 800 abortions every day. There's not many people who know that the 98% of them are done for reasons where it's, it's judged to be in the, for the better mental health of the woman than continuing with the pregnancy. Um, and that's such a loose category that can be applied in so many ways. I don't think we appreciate really too, I'm not sure, I mean, we come back to these terms, pro-life, pro-choice. I'm not sure the pro-choice lobby really do offer choice, uh, even for the women who don't have choice, those who they'd want to be offering the service to. Um, you know, I sometimes think of um, situations of women who find themselves unexpectedly pregnant, um, maybe in a cultural situation. Um, I, I don't know, this is, this is to use extreme cases again, which I often criticize other people for using. <laughs> but, to, but the illegal immigrant who's here without access to benefits, who, who's at the mercy of the men in her life, and she finds herself pregnant. And does she have a choice? Does she, the abortion as, um, clinic is, not, is happy to service what they see as her need. But do they really expand her choice? Do they really offer her the opportunity to 
oh, for holistic care. If I think of some organizations like Life Charity, where they have homes for uh, women who are in vulnerable positions, where, they, where they'll provide job training, all sorts of holistic care for a woman as they support her to go through a pregnancy she, she actually really wants to keep. I don't, I don't think the pro-choice lobby is pro-choice. It doesn't expand a woman's choice. It's not pro-women, really, um, in a wider sense of the word. Yeah, the, the criticism, though, can, is often put back that the pro-life lobby aren't pro-life, they're just pro-birth. And um, you, you address this in your book, actually, which I think was really helpful. Can you speak into, into that criticism and what you think the answer should be? Well, I think, I, think, I, think the art, I think there are so many ways of responding to this topic. I mean, in the book, we've got this sort of tree diagram, I'm not sure, um, which just sort of says there's so many roots to this problem. And there's so many results of, it, of abortion having impacted our society. And there are so many ways in which we can interact on the issue with either the roots or the or the results really uh or the fruit and um yeah i think i think i think that's a criticism that we have to take um i think sometimes we've got very moral about it and not being have not being prepared to get down in the muck of people's lives and and really walk alongside them as they as they go through the decision making process as they deal with relationships in the families as they think about their situation of bringing up children what what do we do after the birth you know how do, how do we support and care and and there are organizations who um who are, are doing like i said like life charity who are doing a great job but local churches could be doing more on that front the problem is for local churches is that um i think it's still so highly stigmatized um we've just got to start talking about it because I, without that i just don't think it's going to be I think it's going to be high, very, very difficult to really offer the kind of care that you want to. Abortion seems such a quick solution. It's so easily available uh, that it seems so easy to go down that route and you don't have to face everything else. So I do think talking about it is, is one, of the, one of the best things you can do. I was just thinking as well, as you were talking, my mind was going off to this idea of just pro-birth. I think there are some clinics starting up around the UK um, who, based on a philosophy, uh, really, or just aware that if a mother actually sees her child on an ultrasound scan, that alters the dynamics of her decision. Um, now, if you go to an abortion clinic, you will have an ultrasound scan, but the screen will be turned away. You you won't be you won't be you won't see your child. It will be it. It's not him, him or her. If you go to an antenatal clinic, your screen will, it's the same situation. The screen will be turned towards you. You'll be counting the fingers and thumbs, wondering whether it's a boy or a girl. You know, all this, there's sort of an emotional bond happening. And once that emotional bond happens, um, I think it, it's, it, well, it reveals truth, doesn't it? I mean, it's part of the argument of seeing pictures. It, it makes it evident of what is actually going on. Um, so these clinics around the country, these sort of um, pro-life clinics are starting to offer women ultrasound scans as part of their um, counselling um, in, in the face of unwanted pregnancy. And they're finding that the, the, the numbers of women who in the end decide not to have an abortion, uh, the numbers of women who decide to have an abortion is reducing because the women have started to engage with the life that's, that's within them. And the other interesting thing is, although they're set up to offer this all this ongoing support for all this other stuff, actually it hasn't been as needed as it seemed 
pre a pre scan, if you see what I mean, or pre decision. I think you know we're all when we when we want to make a decision, we justify it in all sorts of ways. And when we've made another decision, some of those justifications go away. Um, it's um, we do need to be around for these women, but it's not the majority of women who are in such dire straits um, that they need huge amounts of ongoing support afterwards. I hope that doesn't sound uncompassionate. I think it's the fact of the matter when there's 800 a day, um, there will be a tiny proportion. You want to be there for that tiny proportion who really do have very relevant practical needs. But for others, uh, they have the resources within their own circles, within their families, once their decision is made. Yeah. What I find in, in the conversation, as I know talking to an, another friend, is that it, it can very quickly in discussions about this come down to a battle of the stories. Um, this person's a story of being in dire straits versus this person's story of being saved from an abortion, now being a fully grown adult, able to say, you know, abortions are bad. Um, but it seems actually as Christians, we we have to find a more sure footing in this conversation, don't we? Walk us through, perhaps, that for those who have maybe not not really heard much of a, a case or given it too much to walk us through the bible's case um for when life starts or why we shouldn't why why this is it because so here's the thing when i became a christian from a non-christian background it was one of those things i kind of stumbled across like oh now i'm a christian we we don't we don't we're pro-life oh okay uh, why <laughs> and you kind of as a christian you kind of get just swept up oh fine so perhaps for those who might be in a situation like i was um would you mind just taking it back to first principles for us yeah and i think we've also got to acknowledge that there are that there are people who are christian who are thoughtful christians who perhaps don't take the view that that I would take um but and uh, you we also do hear the comments well you know the bible doesn't say much about abortion <laughs> and in some ways that's true it doesn't say that thou shalt not have an abortion um it says an awful awful lot about the love of god and his forgiveness and one thing i always try to make sure is very clear um when i speak on this topic or in, in our conversation now uh, to anyone who's listening who may have had an abortion the bible says a lot more about the love of God for those whose lives have got messy and are messed up, who turn to him and forgive him. They, you know, Romans 8, verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, wherever we've come from. And abortion certainly isn't the, certainly is not the unforgivable sin in any sense of the word. So I'd want to start, I want to start there with the love of God. Um, I'd want to acknowledge that um, uh, it doesn't say explicitly that I shall not have an abortion. But I want to say that the, the general tenor of scripture is assumed that life starts pre-conception, life starts pre-birth and moves through not just into our life as we're experiencing now, but beyond death into the resurrection. Um, I think it's, it's just hinted at in several places the where, you know, Samson was a Nazarite from the womb. Um, it, Jeremiah was known before he was born. Um, the story of Mary visiting Elizabeth um, uh, after after birth, uh, uh, before Jesus was born, rather. And um, and John the Baptist in Elizabeth's womb, leaping for joy as he sort of met the Lord Jesus uh, in a sort of pre-birth sort of setting um now whatever you think of that uh, you know I, it just seems that the bible assumes that life is going on before individuals come out of the womb uh this psalm 139 which talks is talks hugely about being made in the uh, you know 
um, fearfully and wonderfully made, talks about being made in the womb um, and looks beyond. I think one of the most compelling things for me, though, is to think of the Lord Jesus himself. We would never assume that he was not human when he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary, as we say in all our creeds. So as the Holy Spirit, he, as, as Mary conceived the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit, Jesus became man at that moment. And he, we, I don't think we would ever deny that. Um, he lived his earthly life and he's risen, the firstborn from among the dead. Um, and we will follow in his footsteps. This is, this is the model. This is, this is where we're going. I think that's, that's, that is where I would argue it from. I could, I think biblically, I think the um, philosophically, I think I would, I just think any other situation is a complete, is, is potentially so messy. We end up um, trying to decide if someone is human based on what they can do or their capacities or their capabilities. That raises issues not only for the beginning of life, but for the end of life as well, obviously. Um, and we then start getting into, well, is someone's worth life valuable uh, because of what they can do or what they can achieve, how they can contribute. That's never the gospel. The gospel is all about love and uh, being given to us because how God has declared us to be made in his image. Um, it's not never dependent on our worth. It's dependent on our God who's merciful and gracious to us. So it just seems so antithetical to the gospel to me to be thinking along any other sort of um, philosophical framework. Yeah, I mean, that was, it was quite um, terrifying, really, some of the, the places that people go with this. But it seems to me that the discussions moved on from where, where does life begin at conception? It's moved on from there to when does a, when does a life become a person? Yeah. Is that right? So that's where you're alluding to just then. Can you explain that one for us? Yes, I think it's it's when it's yes, it is this separating out of humans. So most most of most scientists would now agree that um, uh, embryo is a embryonic human. Um, but yes, it's when when someone becomes a person uh, and that so has inherent worth, um, and that that could be anything from. Um, uh, uh, well, I would be I would be calling a, a fetus a person, um, but others might not really think that someone becomes a person until they can contribute uh, in in a way. So, is a baby a person? You know, there's this word agencies used. Do they have agency? Well, does a baby have agency when he's dependent on his mother, or he or she is dependent on on the mother all the time, or the father? Um, so, yes, it all gets it all gets all gets very messy and confused. Yeah. So it seems. Um, so my friend is a my friend is a midwife and a Christian, philosophically pro-life, in a vocation that is almost committedly pro-choice, um, because of many of the reasons you said that um, women have been oppressed and uh, their agency and they haven't had control over their own body and people have taken that away from them and so the the whole profession of midwifery is there to empower a woman's choice and so I think you can know the question that's coming I'll find a better way of wording it in the edit <laughs> what would you say to my friend and others who are working in the medical profession or as Christians who just feel this kind of real tug between philosophically I know this is right but vocationally I'm kind of committed to this and um, um well I think it's a bit like what I was talking about earlier when I was a GP you know how did I how did I end up handling it well my mind automatically goes back to Daniel in the Old Testament when he sort of he sort of found himself in a situation 
where he had potentially had influence, um, but he had bottom lines, which he wouldn't cross in terms of, you know, food he would eat and stuff like that. And it's that's that sort of idea that I would I would think about. So um, we have to acknowledge that we're living we're aliens in a foreign land, but like Daniel was, you know, we're living in in a context which it's not home, and um, and it's the now, not yet. Uh, so mm. we have to we have to operate in the mess of lies now. And we and as Christians, we may well make different decisions. So I, as a GP, for instance, I knew that some of my friends wouldn't even see uh, Christian friends wouldn't see felt they couldn't see people requesting an abortion. On the other hand, I chose to see them and have and uh, uh, felt that I was able to. Um, have influence uh, in a way like that. My bottom line, rather than not seeing them, was that I wouldn't sign their forms to say that I supported the decision. Um, and similarly, I think for, for your friend who's a midwife, I think she's there's a sense in which we have to accept that we're working in uncomfortable situations. Um, that is gonna be the norm for Christians who are working in these areas um, while we're still on earth. <laughs> um, but at the same time, she needs to discuss with others, prayerfully consider where her bottom line is, where she is going to be distinctive from maybe the another uh, midwifery colleague. Um, and it may be in how she um, raises the topic of abortion. Now, I've had a friend recently who's a Christian mum, who, well, she's not yet had the baby, she's not yet a mum, but she's pregnant for the first time in her early 40s, so she's a high-risk pregnancy. Um, and every time she goes to the antenatal clinic, she's asked whether she would like tests and whether she'd like, an, because she could have an abortion, because it's part of the procedure. Um, and she's actually come out of the NHS now and gone to see a private obstetrician because she just feels it's so unhelpful for her in terms of developing a health, healthy, healthy relationship with her baby at this stage. She, just, she doesn't want to go there. But there are ways in which a Christian midwife in the NHS could perhaps circumnavigate some of those conversations, um, even with the phrase, now I'm obliged to ask you this, I realise that this is, this is perhaps something which you, you know, you, you'll find difficult to hear, but have you, do you, do you realise that you know, you're at higher risk of a child with an abnormality. Um, the law does provide you with the opportunity to consider abortion if that was the case. Uh, you might add that often women don't, don't, don't decide that that's not for them and that's fine. So you give them the outs to make them feel that, you know, a Christian choice in those situations is normal because actually when you go to these, these clinics, the majority of the time you're felt to feel very abnormal um, if you're holding a Christian line or you would consider having a child and not going through all the testing and all that sort of stuff. So to be the, to be the, the wonderful midwife would allow you to express your views um, in an NHS situation could be, could, be, could, be, could be wonderful, but our consciences are all different and we might make different decisions. But I think it boils down to the fact that acknowledging we're gonna, it's gonna be difficult and working out for ourselves what our bottom line is, where we're gonna be distinctive. Mm. And like you said, it's part of the challenge. Being a Christian means that we're, we, we're living in the gray. We're, li <laughs> we're living yeah. as exiles, as aliens and strangers in a foreign land, knowing how God created it and how he's going to end it and finding ourselves in this story, the, the now but not yet, as you put it. It was, uh, it was interesting to me. I watched a, a video in preparation for this from Planned Parenthood, which is the American um, organization, uh, healthcare provider. Uh, the video is entitled Moving Beyond Pro-Life and Pro-Choice. And at the end, it said decisions about abortion ought to be down to the woman, her family and her faith with the counsel of her doctor or healthcare provider, which, of course, 
we would we would agree with in part um, that it is a woman's decision. But it just strikes me that, like you're saying there, with with the counsel of her doctor or healthcare provider, well, they seem to be weighted towards pro-choice and. And the, the, the cynic in me uh, is aware as well that this is a, a multi-million pound industry for those who provide abortions as well. So it's not a neutral issue um, for the NHS. It's not a neutral issue for those who provide it. They, they need this service to still be there, I suppose. Well, let's come to some just some other questions that kind of I think are linked to this that are relevant to the conversation. How much is the sexual revolution to blame for this and how much is this really a result of our desire to have sex without strings um, and we're now living in a society where we think our sexuality is such a core part of our identity and who we are that to restrict or limit that in any way you know like you mentioned really we're living um, in the wake of these philosophies that have changed that we're kind of the, the pandora is out of the box or pandora's box is open and um and how much is the is it to how much is it the sexual revolution? How much is it just the invention of the contraception, the contraceptive pill, um, birth control? Um, a lot of pro choices would say that this is, on the face of it, it's an issue about abortion, but it's really about you trying to limit who I can and can't have sex with. That actually, you Christians have this strict, you know, conservative view when it comes to sex and sexuality, and that's the real problem here. Um, and then you use these other th these other things to kind of justify that. That's a lot there. I just would appreciate your comments and reflections on any of that. I'm not expecting you to get kind of answer. Yeah, as you say, there's a lot there. I think one of the things that um, we have done culturally, I mean, um, is this thing called Gnosticism. You know, there's this sort of separation of, of us, a disintegration of us as, as human beings. So in one sense, the sort of the Gnostic thing is that, you know, I am not my body. So my body can carry on and have pleasure, but it doesn't actually sort of connect with the rest of it. Um, but also, I think in the way we have disintegrated our gender, our sexuality, um, uh, from who we are, you know, I mean, I, I think there's the whole, whole thing, we're just sort of fractured, and it's as if there are different parts of us, and actually part of the work of the gospel is to reintegrate us, to uh, bring uh, how we're made into a line with our purpose, um, I, I think we've just got so fractured in terms of our body, mind, and soul, and I can see the, I can see the argument if we're, if we're all fractured, and we just want to have fun, but actually, it's, it's not how we were fundamentally created to be. We were created to be integrated with a purpose. And I think it goes right back to Genesis 1, you know, be fruitful uh, and multiply. Procreation is a fundamental part of who we are and how we're made. Um, and that's why I think fundamentally, as I hinted right back at the beginning, is abortion is such, such a violent thing for a woman. Um, it's not that everybody is going to have children like myself. I've never had children. I've not been married. I've, you know, it's not that that women don't do other wonderful things. I mean, I spent my life doing lots of other, other things. Um, but um, there is something very fundamental. And we've just fractured everything, I think. Mm. Well, it's, it was, we're living in a, an age where perhaps the sex education of our children, uh, increasingly younger and younger ages, is peddling this same message that um, you should be free to do whatever you want sexually. And uh, actually, and your adults, your parents, you don't even call them parents, your adults at home shouldn't have the ultimate say in what you do, um, even from a young age. And it seems that then we're, we're really just downstream of, of that ideology that we're trying to you know, save babies from being killed. 
um, downstream of those who are educating our children saying you should just have sex with whoever you want and and like you alluded to in second wave feminism's kind of uh, assault on the human person and actually a war against biology that uh, thinks that that it's oppressive that women have to be the ones who bear this burden and men don't and they want to you know deny that sex distinction entirely we're just and that's where i think it's just really it becomes really difficult you know, well, how do we how do we solve this problem what is a holistic response that christians ought to be and churches ought to be really engaging in well certainly education in schools is one thing do you think we should be lobbying schools a lot more to change um sex education i think certainly getting involved in it is is important um and the role of you know teachers christian teachers or tas in in the classroom and stuff like that um I, 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 I mean, I, I go back to this life charity organization. They also, they also go into schools and do sort of training sessions and six forms and stuff like that and talk about all these issues. Um, other organizations with Christian curricula on sort of sex education and the rest of it. Um, I, you almost feel, you almost feel, oh, there's so much, there is so much to do. Um, so how do you, that's, a, that's perhaps a good question is then, how do you stop yourself just feeling overwhelmed and impotent in the face of such a so you know, 200,000 and increasing year on year 800 a day I don't know we can't carry that that kind of trauma and information without it causing us to go to strange places how do you process that and what do you think is a healthy way to to be in the world well I think that um for us as Christians we the idea that we, we need to keep our eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus you know under whom uh, under whose control all things are um, and who has already reconciled everything through his death and resurrection. So we, there's a sense of confidence in that, not just in an intellectual way, but in a day-to-day way as well, because he's the world, he's the guy that holds all things together, who is like orchestrating everything behind the tapestry of our individual lives. And we can only do what is in front of us. Um, and we can put our next step in front of us. So I had the opportunity to write the book. So that was my, that's my contribution to the thing. I haven't got lots of experience of setting up a pro-life center or a, a early pregnancy center. That's a wonderful thing to do, but other people will have the passion and the desire and the heart for that. Um, I don't do things quite in the same way with images and stuff like that, but other people do, and they have the heart and the passion for that. And we all need to be given that freedom to, to do that. I, I, absolutely think we must pray you alluded to some you know the response of the book i think this is um this is dark territory this is this whole abortion thing is absolutely horrendous and there's a spiritual battle going on and i think that's part of the challenge that we have with with writing the book it's part of the challenge the reason that pro different pro-life organizations actually sometimes find it a bit difficult to work together we've got to be we've got to be praying into this issue big time um, and then it, empowering others and giving people the opportunity to um, to to get on and do do things that God prompts God puts on their heart to do. Um, and I do think it's we ought to be signing up and supporting other organisations that are that are involved with advocacy, lobbying government. I mean, I've never written so many letters to my MP based on um right to life uh, uh, organization often these charities are not particularly christian on the face of it they're, but they're loaded with christians behind the scenes um uh, because as you've alluded to the faith thing becomes a bit of an issue for people and people think well just because you're christians you you're moralizing and telling us how we should behave 
Yeah, so I think one foot, pray one foot in front of the other. Don't lose heart because God has got it. And, um, and care for the individuals. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really um, just helpful reminder as well that A, we're not the Messiah, <laughs> but B, we're part of a body. And it's recovering that body idea that um that's that's linked to the first one you're not the savior but you are part of a body and every part in the body has a different part to play but the question we all ought to be asking is what's my part to play in this issue and what's the lord calling me to do yeah it's really um well i know this this isn't linked to that that one there but it's just something i've often wrestled with and you hear this regularly as a man I'm told I'm not allowed to talk about this and it's not my issue. It's a woman's issue. So actually it'd be quite offensive for some people that I'm even asking you these questions and daring to talk about this with a woman. What would your comment be to that? Well, that's, that opens a whole nother can of worms, but I think that that speaks into how some, our thinking on gender has got corrupted as a society and um, men and women have both have roles to play there's a unity in our genders but a distinction in our roles and I think sometimes those have been abrogated and what we need is good men to stand up to stand up um, and to model what it means to treat women well um, and to commit to women in marriage and all sorts of things Um, and I want to hear your voice is what I want to say because and it's great to see the number of men who are engaged in this debate. Um, I think they do need to be wise and sensitive um, because uh, they are never the ones who are going to carry the, the load of an unwanted pregnancy. Um, so I think they need to proactively be seeking out women to stand alongside them and help them in the role. And sometimes, sadly, I don't see that happening. Um, and I wish we'd do, it, we'd do that more. Yeah. Because there needs to be a humility to understand that they, they, they don't actually understand. But at the same time, they need to be involved in the debate. And Christian men modelling what it means to, to love and support uh, women, care for their families, treat women well. Yeah, because that's what I was going to say. I was, um, that I th- I'm aware that the, the, the reason behind people would say, oh, you, don't, you can't speak in this because I don't carry the burden of this. Um, I'm not I, on the face of it, at least for those, the trauma of this is going to be felt by the women. But it also seems to me that the way society has got to is that it, with our, our attitudes towards sex is that it, it seems to serve the men most anyway. We overlook the fact that women are always going to be the more vulnerable partner in a sexual encounter because they're always the ones who bear the risk of having to live with the consequences of this in a way that men don't. Yeah, that's really helpful way of looking at it. It seems to me that the sexual revolution was promised to liberate women, but has actually just given men what they always wanted, which was, you know... Um, sex without consequences and actually now we now we don't even have to get married to the woman we can just have sex and actually the women's magazines promote this this vision of sexuality for women that seems to me a very masculine vision that is just lots of irresponsible carefree sex when it's it's never like that for women um, and that that isn't going to change unless the unless our biology changes which is um what what you were alluding to earlier with the comments on second wave feminism um any further comments on that <laughs> on, on the sexual revolution and men and women no i think that's a really really helpful way of, of putting it um thinking of women's vulnerability in the context of sexual re- um relationships yeah one of the things that strikes me in, the, in this debate too is we're talking we talk, it's a bit of a sort of a shift in our conversation, but we talk a lot about vulnerability and women being vulnerable, but we often don't think about the vulnerability of the unborn child. And um, 
and widen it, given what's happening with disability to the vulnerability of disabled people and what it says about us as how we care for those who are most vulnerable. And we'd hope the church would be the, the prime model, obviously. Um, but I think it is a challenge to society. It's really hard to know how to speak into this issue in society. But one thing would be one way of doing it would be to talk around the issue of vulnerability. And you can acknowledge the vulnerability of women. I mean, there's this truth in feminist arguments and women do find themselves in vulnerable situations in, in many ways. Um, and that and to acknowledge that, to acknowledge the right, the wrongness of people being unnecessarily vulnerable. Um, but then to question the vulnerability of unborn children. There can't be anything more vulnerable, really. Perhaps a newborn child. Yeah, it's the most dangerous time in your life, isn't it? The time where you're most at risk is when you're... Can't do anything. Yeah, can't do anything. And actually what, what babies need is people to speak out for them um, in a society that seems to... You know, I remember a friend putting it like this years ago. He said, um, you, you can tell what a society worships by the sacrifices it's willing to make. And we worship sex and so therefore justify the sacrifice of babies because we worship sex and we think it's it's ultimate in our lives and i think again christians need to recover uh, and promote and celebrate um sex as god sex as good but not god um, in a society that does treat sex as god and ultimate um it just seems so hard when we're, we're decades downstream from people like freud who said almost exactly what our flesh wanted them to say. They gave a scientific rationale um, for what our sinful nature has always wanted. Oh, you know, <laughs> legitimate, selfish indulgence of sexual appetites. Um, well, it also gets back to this idea is, you know, well, we don't actually do what we think is right most of the time. We can have all these philosophical, it's, what, it's not what we think is right that we do, it's what we want to do that we do. I, you know, it's, and so there's the heart, there's, there's lots of, there's lots of ways of talking about this, which I think, lead to conversations about the call for repentance, the call for an acknowledgement of the God who made us and who has plans that are good for us. And yeah, um, so that's partly why, that's partly why I enjoy is perhaps the wrong word, talking about abortion. But I do think it begs the question, is God big enough to handle this kind of issue, the whole complexity of it? And I come to the very firm conclusion that he is, whether it's the philosophical stuff, whether it's the intellectual arguments, whether it's the pastoral care. Uh, we serve a God who is loving and gracious and merciful, who is strong, mighty to save. And, you know, sometimes we can, I mean, this is a, this is a lifelong learning process, isn't it? For it to move from our head knowledge to something that we really come to depend on day by day in our hearts. And coping with an unwanted pregnancy is a real challenge. Uh, but God is bigger than that challenge. And um, I'd want to hope to be helping and walking alongside women, helping them to know God in the midst of really difficult times and to know him to be faithful and good and true. Oh, man, I mean, that's that's probably just a really healthy place and helpful place to leave it, recognising the great courage that's required of women to bring children into the world, but also recognising that God is big enough to help them in this situation. I think it, it strikes me that once a woman becomes pregnant, that becomes a life-defining moment, regardless of which direction they take it. It's not as, as from your book as well, it's clear, it's not as though having an abortion gets rid of all the negative consequences that might have been associated with that pregnancy. Um, and actually then what is what's needed is 
courage and faith to trust God and uh, and probably the compassion and support systems of people in your life to help. Um, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real privilege and pleasure to talk with you. And um, if people wanted to find out more about your work or or get in touch with you, of course, I can recommend they read the book. But is there anything in particular that you'd encourage people to do? Um, yeah, I've sort of mentioned a few things as I've gone along. So to check out some of the if you, to just think and pray how you want to be involved. Um, Life Charity is great. It's giving you a sort of wide breadth of different sorts of things. You could different avenues you could go. But there may be local expressions, local, local groups, local. Um, um, uh, but I'd also sign up for an advocacy thing. So you know what's going on politically. And they really do a great job at helping you um, liaise with, GP, with um, MPs and stuff like that. Um, and Right to Life would be the one I'd recommend. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you.